Perfect. One, two, one, two. One, two, one, two. Yeah, perfect. Is that good, Fergie? All good? Yeah, perfect. Thank you so yeah. much. Okay, it looks like we're good. Okay, okay. awesome. So, so, should we start? Ready to start? Ready to start. Welcome back to The Nature of Things, episode two. Very, very excited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of fun making the first episode together, just yeah. introducing ourselves and essentially just giving you guys an overview of what we're doing, our intentions and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, but today we, but before we start um, the second episode, we would like to um, give an acknowledgement of country. So we wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we meet on today, um, the Ngunnawal people, and we pay respects to elders past and present. And we acknowledge that the name Wurundi, um was taken from the people of the Wadi Wadi Nation without permission, and we are striving to do better. And um, from last week, we started like a little tradition of um, going a little bit deeper into the acknowledgement of countries because um, the script that a lot of people use um, to acknowledge country doesn't suffice and doesn't pay enough acknowledgement and respect to the country on which um, we live, we all live. Um, and this week... I've been thinking a lot about like the beauty and the stability um, of the country. So as we're sitting now, the sky is crystal blue, the air is crisp, and every morning I wake up and I pull up my blinds and I've got the most magnificent view of Black Mountain. Um, and it really does inspire me every day to get up and seize the day. Um, and I think more generally, it's really, really important to talk about the beauty and the stability of the country on which we live and how that's actually being threatened through our practices mm -hmm. um, and how we can collaborate with, with the Indigenous Australians of this land and of this country who have been doing it for tens of thousands of years um, and work with them, um, work aside them in order to create and ensure that future generations, as they have done and as we have, um, can continue to feel the stability and the beauty and benefit from it. Yeah. Do any of you guys have anything more <coughs> to add to that? Um, I guess I can add quickly in the sense that um, Australia is where I was born. However, it was a country my parents, you know, came to after leaving Iran. Um, and I've never really acknowledged it until recently, but this has been like a safety net for them. This country has been a very safe place for them. Despite the racism and other things they face, this has still been a place, this is their second chance. This was this country was their second chance. And um, I, I feel very guilty sometimes being in this country because I'm like, this is, we, we're living on stolen land and this isn't really our place and we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have come here, you know, in the, in the sense that I feel very guilty that we, s we are still taking up Indigenous space. Um, but um, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to, to be raised on this land and to be around people and, to, and for my parents to have been able to live the life that they can finally live in this country. And a big part of that is the, the kindness and acceptance that Indigenous people have for refugees and um, asylum seekers and their acceptance of them in this country. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that we are living on stolen land and um, we need to work and do better, even as a refugee and migrant community, to work with Indigenous people to, to reclaim their history and their land. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah, yeah. 
and acknowledge that, you know. Um, hi, my name is Caro Moret. Nice meeting you guys. Oh, we need to introduce uh, you. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, I, I completely agree on everything you said before. Um, but I was thinking for a long time. Now it's been three years since I arrived to Australia, uh, to this university. Mm. And, you know, I was a little bit, at the very beginning, I was a little bit shocked with the acknowledgement of con country. Um, but not because of that, but because of, uh, because everybody in some point was accepted. Of course, that, as you mentioned before, this kind of a script that everybody repeat, that it seems like sometimes people don't feel it, people don't understand it, but they repeat it. But that acceptance, you know, like, sorry, that social acceptance, I said, oh my God, I wish that all the Afro-descendants, all our diasporas, could have at least that in the country that we arrive as diasporas, you know. Um, I'm, I'm Afro-Cuban, and in the case of Cuba, um, I think that something barely similar of their knowledge is repeated by Afro-Cuban, but it's very connected with the tradition, es especially with the religious tradition, something like quite similar. So for me, that was the shocking thing. Not because, you know, these people do it, this is, oh no, I wish that, you know, we had this kind of social acceptance and this kind of, this kind of a knowledge that we do because um, in the case of my family, an Afro-Cuban family with uh, a lot of religious tradition and, you know, it's very common. But it's true also that in the rest of the Cuban society, they is not used and of course it's not institutionalized and we don't have this social acceptance for this kind of um, acknowledgement. So I, I, very happy, I mean, I felt very happy. It's like, maybe it was, I was meant to be mm -hmm. here, you know? <laughs> It was a kind of very strange situation, but I say, yeah, it's not enough. I understood very quickly that it's not enough, that Australia need to do more, we need to do more, mm -hmm. and we need to help. Like you mentioned, mm -hmm. this is not our land, this land uh, is still contested, no? Mm -hmm. uh, but I was, yeah, I only can say thank you. Because, okay, here, they are doing something that I think that African diasporas will still need to maybe ask for. Because in our case, it was the other way around. Uh, we were kidnapped mm -hmm. and we were distributed as mercancy, as you know, products mm -hmm. through all the Caribbean and, and Latin America and other, other countries. Mm -hmm. We were in India, we were, so there is a lot of African diaspora mm -hmm. all across the world and yeah. Well, thank you all for sharing those thoughts. And I think that sort of gives a really good segue into introducing yeah, our guests, which, <laughs> we, which say. Yeah, it sort of has happened a little bit organically, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but um, Dr. Murray, would you like to introduce yourself? Mm. Um, like handing the mic to you and yeah, just give us a little bit of an overview of who you are, what you do. Yeah, for those that are interested. Um, sure. Uh, my name is Caro Moret Miranda. I'm a historian. I'm Afro-Cuban. Uh, I arrived to Australia three years ago. 
And since then, I've been teaching to um, my Australian students um, African and Afro-descendants history. Mm. And um, now I'm teaching also for master's students um, a new course on art and archive uh, conversation, trying to contest or ask the archive about the missing subjects, the ignored subjects. Mm -hmm. So um, what I wanted to do is continue doing that. And of course, it's connected with my research. I research on African and Afro-descendants diaspora, uh, basically on three intersectional axes, um, race, gender, and religion. Okay, very interesting. I have a question. I've never really considered religion in, in history, well, specifically in Afro-Cuban history, mm -hmm. um, but how important is the role of religion in sort of shaping the way communities were made? Um, because I know religion is sometimes often a very big factor, um, and then sometimes it's not really, but in, in cause I have to acknowledge that I'm quite ignorant on Afro-Cuban history. Um, I've been doing much more, a lot more research and readings outside of just the general scope of things that I read. But I'm just very curious about the role of religion because that's a really interesting aspect. Um, also, maybe I've got sort of to add to that. So religion, I think, at least in my mind, and it might be similar for a lot of people, I think when we think of religion, we think of these like huge institutions, the church, I mean, other, um, yeah, different religions and stuff like that, but more institutional. Um, my sort of question is like, or it's it sort of connects to mm. this, um, is that sort of way of thinking about history, I mean, about religion in terms of like an institution, like the bodies and stuff, like implementing things. Obviously, there's that colonial history of like the um, the Catholic Church going into Africa and other religions and stuff like that. But is there something, like, could perhaps, like, ritual and custom be also, like, associated with religion and stuff like that in, the, like, the um, like Afro-Cuban context, especially, like, way back in history um, when these institutions weren't as um, prevalent, yeah, prevalent or as formed as they are now? Um, okay, I'm going to answer both questions yeah. in <laughs> my... Uh, this is usually my class, uh, first class when I start my course. So this is uh, African and Afro-descendant history 101. Okay, <coughs> okay, the first thing that I explain to my students to see the connections basically on Africa and the diaspora, in this case with the Caribbean, is I always ask, my first question usually is, um, how African religion change with the slave trade? Yeah, okay. Okay. How that changed? What was the meaning of the slave trade for uh, religion? Of course, we can imagine how African life um, and people change after the slavery, but how that, the kidnap, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the trade and the selling of mm -hmm. those African bodies, and finally the slavery, the exploitation, the rapes, how that changed 
the practice and the exercise of the of that African religion. Yeah. So how African religion was developed in the Caribbean after all those uh, process of extermination. Okay. And well, the second thing that I explain is that in Africa, in the case of Nigeria, for example, what today is Nigeria, mm -hmm. they used to have more than 400 ancestors. That you can understand it more or less like gods. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. They are not gods, but we, or usually Western uh, academia, can understand it like yeah. kind of gods. Uh, they have more than 400. And the ki this kind of ancestor that uh, today, they are um, feed. That mm. is another another word, yeah. right? We feed the ancestors. Mm -hmm. yeah, we yeah. feed the gods. Okay. You know? Literally too. Oh. Not okay. only with the time that you dedicate to them, uh, but also with food, with uh, drinks. With okay? okay, you please them. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is that what are the the gods and ancestors that we exercise and please in the Caribbean after the slave trade? Maybe 20, 24 as maximum. And we have more than 400. Wow. So what is the place, what the uh, slave trade did that mm. changed all that? The answer of that question, and is the answer for almost the whole topic, is that when the Africans were kidnapped and they were put in those ships, they couldn't carry any luggage. So, right? They didn't have the time to make the luggage and mm -hmm. say, okay, I'm going on holidays. No, 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 you were kidnapped, you were doing your life, and you were kidnapped and put in a ship, and after that, maybe three months, four months, you arrived to a place where you will sell. So all your humanity was gone, you're not a human anymore. Mm. Now you became a product. And a very specific product. That's when we talk about the modernity. Well, the modernity in the case of the Caribbean and uh, the modernity because of the slave trade, this is the moment where the whole world is realized that that was the business. Slavery was the business. Why? Because the African body became in a very modern, modern body. I understand that there is it's very difficult to explain mm -hmm. the irony in radio, but that's how I was understand why. Because you can sell it, you can sell the African body, you can buy the African uh, slave body, you could rent it, work for you, all the profit was for you as master of that body, and the perfect body was the feminine and a slave African body because that body can bring you more and a slave body mm -hmm. for yeah. you. So it was the perfect product in that time. Mm -hmm. That's why some um, uh, academics recognize that the African body in that moment became in the very modern product. Yeah. It was perfect. There is no regret. You always, it was a win-win. What happened with the religion is that we can imagine that all those African bodies in those ships, they couldn't get a luggage, they couldn't, you know, they were alone. So now we can, we will imagine those bodies sell it and working in the plantation. And then my question is, to whom those peoples are gonna pray? 
now yeah. in that new situation. Yeah. And my question is for you, to whom those Africans now in the new world, in the Caribbean or in Latin America and the United States, to whom they are going to pray now? If they have more than 400 gods in their own land, so they have God for everything, mm -hmm. for the rain, for the land, for the harvest, for everything. Now that they are in that situation, they are only going to pray. They are only going to feed. They are only going to exercise to the gods or ancestors that represent protection and revenge. Mm -hmm. I think I'm trying to sort of put my mindset, I'm trying to like get myself in the mindset of like, I mean, I don't know how well like traveled these people were before, but as you said, like a new world, like although different parts of the world aren't completely, completely different, I just would imagine that going from an example like, yeah, like um, perhaps like Western Africa to then the Caribbean or America and so on, like the environment and the landscape would be so vastly different. They would have been exposed to different things. So then the issue does arise, okay, what's the God for this then? Because they didn't know, is that what sort of, I, is that yeah. what you were saying? Like the the gods um, were associated with like the different assets, like the different parts of the land, like the rain, the ground, that sort of stuff? Yes, but the thing is that the Africans that arrive as an slave, they were free in Africa, and then they become an enslave. They were not worried about the environment because that land does not belong to them. They were not worried about harvest, you know, because the land and everything and their own bodies belong to the master, the white master. So now why I have to pray for the God of the ancestor of rain? For what? For the sugar cane grow mm. faster and strong and more sugar canes that I, as an slave, had to cut? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that is how the exercising of religion change. And I think it's, this is one of the reasons that, especially how uh, Caribbean religion and, and um, American black religion, mm -hmm. uh, traditional, started to be built you know it's very connecting with sacrifice it's very connecting with protection because those bodies now what they need always was to be protected or to be strong enough to have their revenge mm -hmm. that is not so re so strange then that the most of the Caribbean religion are uh, the most of the rituals and ceremonies are connected with blood yeah it's about sacrifice yeah. because you need to be protected. And what is the most precious thing in your body? Yeah. Wow. It's very interesting. That makes it like that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. And how? And yeah. I just had a question though. It may be div uh, diverting a bit from that, but and there's probably an there's there's probably an answer. We all probably know the answer, but why then if? Afro-Cuban history is so, I, I want to say rich as in the history of the people and then also important as the, the movement and what has happened to them and, and just like the subsequent events that followed. Um, why then is it, do we never hear about it? Because we, 
and I, I guess we all know the answer. Um, but but why is it that we hear a lot of Western history and there's like a sense like there's a glorification of western history always especially i find world war ii is seriously glorified fun and i don't really agree with why it's glorified but why is it that we find those aspects of history glorified and brought to the light um but then not these parts of history like afro-cuban history and also indigenous history because when i was in school in primary school and we talked about indigenous australians they would be like they would say things along the lines of australia came and like um took over like um the land um and like we had the stolen generation but now after gough whitlam everything's okay but that sentence it makes sense australia came who is australia yeah who is it what came yeah. from when yeah from where <laughs> yeah is that australia came uh, yeah. was Australia kind of alien? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, you know, it's yeah. Sometimes we normalize things yeah. that when you think a little bit more, you don't realize in that moment. I I suppose it was primary school mm -hmm. and you know all that stuff, but you realize that oh my god, I've been years and I've been repeating this, and you know I never questioned this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it make sense yeah. that Australia came and took over the our who is Australia? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, I was just curious. I mean, like, why do you think... And also, how hard is it to find history on, um, on I guess, and I'm going to say this others, by others I mean non-Western, mm. like, or European st states in history, because I find it in extremely difficult to find courses on other countries and other non-white states i find it extremely difficult i'm really interested in history but i can never find anything mm -hmm. so i mean it's very important that you teach like are teaching these classes but why do you think it is that there's just no research in the field and if there is research in the field predominantly for instance i've seen on the documentaries and stuff that i've watched it's it's driven pioneered by white people that have found an interest in it and have just like succeeded in getting there. But the POCs that are involved in it are never, you know, fully at the forefront of like history or his historical research. Um, Sorry, that was a long no, question. No, 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 it's, it's all good. I was thinking that there's something that shocked me when I, I came here. I don't know if you have time, but someone can check the Twitter of this university, the just the official Twitter and what the Twitter said. Mm -hmm. What's the name of the university? And I'll have a look for you. Um, I think it was, or, or is it with, I don't remember right now if it's the Twitter of the university or the Twitter of the School of History. Some of these. Uh, they, 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 they yes, yes, please. Because uh, I think uh, they mentioned something that we're specializing in Western history. And I say, <laughs> okay, and I just sign a contract to teach something that is not Western history. I'm yeah. going there, oh, okay. Well, that kind of things, and that is the thing that, you know, the most of the students and people are interested in, you know, read that, and, mm -hmm. and, and that is normalized. I don't mm -hmm. know if I would keep that, you know, nowadays, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, but, you know, mm -hmm. after all the things that are happening, um, there's something that I always said to my students that they also need to help to improve, mm. you know, the knowledge. They need to ask 
to the, uh, their own teachers what they are interested in mm -hmm. and they need to push a little bit more you know it's great to be a researcher but in the case of teaching is completely different you know uh, the relationship between the students and the teacher they are also a kind of that especially if you're teaching uh, social science uh, this is all about the questions mm -hmm. and we are trying to explain the past to be able to understand the point where we are now so uh, the point where we are right now is that we need to incorporate everything and what is Black Lives Matter and how mm -hmm. you still are fixed teaching this Western history from that <laughs> <laughs> canonical point of view, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> um, instead, of in, instead of say, okay, we need to survey this, we need to twist this, we mm -hmm. need to, you know, push a little bit more because the situation we are now, this is not helping. So we need to bring new actors, we need to bring new knowledge to this. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter is not an exceptional thing. It's new, it's happening now. Mm -hmm. We all can read, we understand more or less what is happening, uh, but this is, no, this is not new. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's not the first movement, social movement created by mothers, mm -hmm. you know, by black mothers mm -hmm. that happened before. And what's as important as today is Black, black Lives Matter, you know. So that kind of things you need to explain. But if you only if you decided to explain the past in this kind of westernized history with only people from you know only one color or mm -hmm. or no color at all, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's impossible. And it's impossible to understand what is happening right now. Mm -hmm. But I said that the student need to push that. You know, they need to ask the questions, mm -hmm. and they need to say, "Yeah, it's beautiful to learn about Rubens and about Velázquez and you know, all the classics." I understand, but there were also a lot of non-white painters. There were also they need to explain how the non-white subject had been represented in all those classical, you know, mm -hmm. classical canon for paintings, that kind of things. Mm -hmm. Because those classical paintings, they has been telling us for centuries where is the position of those non-white subjects, mm -hmm. not only in the paintings, in life. Yeah. So we need to contest that. We need to, you know, ask the questions. Yeah, absolutely. And so now I think this sort of what I'm saying is sort of relates to exactly what I want to sort of bring it back to the religion and like the more content based stuff, um, like with the religion. And I think I agree with you completely in terms of like understanding history and where we are now. It's like when you understand, when you learn history and you understand it, then I feel like a lot of fear is also gone from it because I think in the west especially like we perceive these like blood ri like these these rituals to do with blood and other Satan customs yeah that's right we 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 have this really warped sense of like oh it's violent it's this it's it that it has to be violent yeah, it if has it to has to deal with yeah, blood. it's, it's right. savages yeah that, that all that yeah, kind of thing these yeah. really archaic i mean thought Cave processes men. yeah that are that are associated with that that 
if you don't learn history and you actually understand, okay, no, blood means protection because it's the only thing that they, like that yeah. that we can control and the only thing that we that means anything and and that sort of stuff. It opens your mind completely to new possibilities, and that's something that I personally didn't. I didn't. Kn- I didn't know that that, that, that the significance of blood in those mm. religions and customs and so on was to do with protection and to do with revenge and But and I think just quickly, Jack, sorry. I think Western culture also thrives off making the other always f- like the scary the scary thing. Like if you watch for instance horror movies, you'll always see a non POC character using blood in like rituals or something and then like a demon comes out or something. Or a zombie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're always like wanting to make something that is so inherent to us something that literally belongs to us and can trace our ancestry as something demonic and evil and like i think that has to do also with western media and representation like they thrive off like inciting fear into people um when it comes to some like when it comes to something they don't know when it comes to the other right and it's also the fact that i think the people that are controlling the media and so on, they don't have this understanding and knowledge. So it's so like egregious of them to then think that they can portray these types of things in a, in a, in Uh, this way. I don't think so. I don't believe in the ignorance of people. I think that they use that they know, but they are agreed to use it uh, to protect continue protecting the uh, Western point uh, way of life and the Western thought and of course they need to believe and people need to believe that you know zombie they came from this very dark island and that everybody there you know are zombie Mm -hmm. and there's a kind of demonization of Haiti right Mm. Uh, people don't know nothing about history of Haiti what they know about zombies mm. and everybody hate it, right? They yeah. do voodoo and voodoo yeah. is bad and uh, that kind of thing. So they know, yeah. but um, it's it they use it as an interest, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's very good for them. It's perfect because people are lazy and they believe, you know, what they told. Um, people are lazy to read or to ask for the real history of Haiti but it's easier to know, you know, and it's yeah. fun and, you know, you don't have to yeah. um, fact check. Yeah. yeah. So it's easier to believe in zombie and everybody in Haiti do voodoo. That's easy, easy, that is the kind of thing that is easier to believe. Mm-hmm. I guess, sorry, I just had a question then, Dr. Murray. Do you not feel a sense of anger when you hear about, so as a historian, right, you hear about what has been done to your people and how heinous these acts have been and how unfair and unjust and like these have all been and have been that have happened to your people do you not feel a really like great sense of anger because for instance i when i hear it i feel angry and then in the context of me for instance when i hear about what's happened to my people like from iran and what has been continuously happening to them up until this point since the revolution i have this like unending sense of anger and like need for justice at all times and i feel like it is tiring 
for me, I'm always tired and I'm always like, damn, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I don't want to know about this. Maybe ignorance is bliss. But honestly, do you feel like a sense of anger as much as you may enjoy studying history? Like, do you feel angry when you study it? Uh, maybe when I was young, you know? Yeah. But then you... In my, well, in my case, I wanted to continue studying this kind of thing and researching and teaching mm -hmm. these kind of things. So I need to choose, of course. You know, I can be consuming. I mean, the anger, I can let the anger consume me or I could do something about it. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that, as you mentioned, is tiring because... Um, in my case, I'm teaching things that I am part of, that knowledge, um, me, my family, my friends. So yes, it's, it's a little bit tiring, of course. It's not the same um, for my students when we read, I don't know, in, in a newspaper about Black Lives Matter, and then we will discuss about that, um, or any other news. Um, about Cuba, wha but of course that affected me, but I decided, you know, I choose to teach these kind of things yeah. in a way that I wanted to be taught when I was a student. Yeah. And it's tiring, yes. It's consuming, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's gratifying, yes. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And I think that that is what I want to do, yeah. you know, and I'm a little bit more happy um, that I'm teaching this kind of thing, especially because uh, you mentioned before in a university what is very complicated, mm -hmm. very difficult to have um, non-Western uh, history uh, courses. It's complicated. Yeah. It's very difficult to find, maybe a class, maybe a conference, but you don't have a another course so yeah, yeah I'm happy to do it I enjoy a lot the relationship with um, with the students mm -hmm. the discussions you know yeah I usually let uh, the, the the door open for the students to tell me what is the kind of things that they are interested in mm -hmm. I try not to impose um, I don't know I'm I'm not interested in in my students, they research all about Cuba or Afro-Cuban mm -hmm. religion, you know, that is what I do. Yeah. So I'm more than happy for my students to choose whatever they, the course is about African and Afro-descendants, so they can choose any African diaspora or any African country. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that is part because I learn, I listen and other things. We all learn in class. We listen to, we are obliged to listen to the other and that is how it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know? And this idea also that Western history is only England and France, you know? It's like there are only European his uh, countries. Mm -hmm. That is so wrong, right? So I think that <laughs> European history or Western history here has a lot of problems too. So I try to do my best, you know? I yeah. try to be open. I wish I could have, you know, course like um, global history or, or history is something you know yeah but you know it's a modest course that try to explain and understand the connections the similarities and the difference between uh, African diasporas and African country 
and I think my students enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. And just a question to do with that: Did um, did different African diaspora in different parts of the world sort of de like did religion develop? Obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that it de it developed differently in different parts. Like, could you give us like a few examples and like perhaps like explain like how and like what inspired or influenced the changes in terms of how religion was sort of implemented into their mm -hmm. lives and stuff and it, how yeah. it developed? Yeah, no, that is super passionate. <laughs> yeah. I, I, is is ve is very interesting, or I think it's very interesting uh, when you started to compare the different African diaspora. I'm only going to talk about a few examples, but um, uh, for example, um, in the case of uh, American, Latin America, and the Caribbean, uh, the issues on the practice of uh, Afro-descendants religions in that territory depends of uh, which re, uh, was the religion of the empire that conquered that place. It's quite different if you had a Spain or Portugal as an empire, or, or if you have England mm -hmm. or um, the Dutch, for example. Um, in the case of the um, Catholic empires, uh, Spain and Portugal, the relationship between with the colonies was a little bit different than with the uh, um, comparing with um, the Protestant empires. But how this African religion was developed in these different colonies? Uh, well, we have in the case of Cuba, we have a few different religions. Um, only one country, for example, in Cuba, you have the Santeria, you have the Abaqua, you have the Palomonte. In the case of uh, um, Haiti, you have, of course, the Voodoo, but there are like four different uh, big groups of uh, Voodoo as practice. The Javet, the Rara, I mean, difference, but also inside that those big groups, you have also different kind of practices. Mm. Um, if you're going to another uh, island, for example, like Trinidad, those places were very uh, extraordinary and specific, and, and all the mix that happened uh, between the different subjects that arrived to those islands uh, was very special. In the case of those little islands, uh, they had uh, Chinese population working as endangered. They had Indian population working as endangered, um, more or less like an slave, but they were not actually an slave. And they have, of course, African and slave people. Mm -hmm. So you have this mix of Indian, Chinese, and African, you know, all mixed it together. Uh, and what happened there is that all the religion, you know, they took it was uh, it was a kind of weaving, mm. you know, in the process. So what you have in the religion is that the religion that happened is still is practicing there has a little bit of all those. Mm. Uh, in some of the islands, for example, that receive those three different groups, they have depend of the um, which part of India they ar arrive. They have, for example. Uh, part of the practice, Muslim practice, 
too. So it's very interesting what happened. Uh, it's very well known what happened in the United States. Um, I'm not going to stop too much there. Yeah. But in the case of the United States, with the um, Protestant practices and what we know, I mean, the more public um, practice is uh, the black churches and the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Something about this and a specific kind of music, but you only can ha you only can find uh, gospel music in the United States, which mm -hmm. is something very specific, and has to do with the kind of religion that uh, and how the uh, Western religion was applied for the uh, slave that arrived to United States, mm -hmm. and the same happened in 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 other island and in other territories. In the case of Brazil, for example, you have the Candomblé and the Ubanda and the different practices that, but we need to remember that in the first part of the um, uh, colonialism, Brazil was a Catholic empire. So the, the approach that happened, all the mix with the um, Africans that arrived in Brazil had to do with that. But for example, something very unusual that happened in Brazil is that they receive um, a very specific but a very important group of Muslims, uh, Africans. So recently, I mean, less than 10 years ago, something uh, some archaeologists and historians in Brazil, they, f they started to found that uh, in the plantations, they discover uh, some of the Quranic schools of these in Brazil. So these kind of things, you can see how diverse is and how rich is. Um, you choose. I mean, mm -hmm. you choose. You have Dutch uh, islands, like I'm thinking in the Suriname, for example, also mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, that the most of the colonization were made by Dutch. And a lot of Jewish population from the, the Netherlands, they arrive and establish. And it's very crazy how you can trace those Jewish that were uh, the, the same families that were spelled in 15th century from Spain. So what you have is that those Jewish families spelled from Spain, the Sephardites, they were expelled from Spain, they arrived and established and settled in the Netherlands. And then a couple of centuries after that, they became in a slaveholders in the Caribbean. So history is diverse and is crazy and is strong and you know especially diverse. Mm -hmm. How you can find all these religions in this you know only in this part of the world and only as a product of the slave trade is pretty crazy. Mm. And I think it just shows that we're learning history wrong as like isolated events, events yeah. you know? There's nothing isolated about anything that's happening. I mean, like we can literally take a pen and trace all of these things and it all connects. And like, that's just really like yeah. moving to me. But do you know what else is interesting? And this is probably a question for you, Dr. Murray, but mythology I've heard, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, and so on and so forth, actually has a lot of descendant from like African mythology. And do you do you seem to find that the case? And like, did was mythology inter intertwined with religion? At like f from your research, have you seen that? Because I feel like mythology is a, is a way of 
storytelling and lesson telling to like don't do this this will happen or these are the outcomes of something but i find it very interesting that we've only very much acknowledged like um greek mythology or roman mythology which i'm still very interested in and i find very fascinating but recently i've I've learned that it ha actually came just like you said like if you draw if you trace a line it actually comes from somewhere completely different and these ideas have been taken but what what have you found have you found that to be the case uh well um I I I, I didn't found it I mean it was already there yeah, so yes <laughs> <laughs> nowadays you know these days it's difficult to find something new yeah I yeah. think that everything has been there for a long time um, we have a look. Exactly. Exactly. No, but uh, for example, there are there, there are these uh, amazing five volumes, mm. and I say volumes yeah. of uh, history uh, by these um, archaeologists. Uh, well, he was very famous, mm. um, Bernal. Um, Sorry, I cannot remember the, yeah. the the first name, but his last name is uh, Martin Bernal. Yeah. Martin Bernal, he was a historian archaeologist from Cornell University. And in the late 90s, or early 90s, sorry, early 90s, he started to write and to publish these five volumes that he was trying to explain, of course, the roots of the Greek and uh, Roman um, mythology. Yeah and how we can trace that uh, to Africa and Asian civilizations. Uh, this was not new, not even when he was trying to put it all together. I mean, he wrote five volumes about this. One volume is connected with uh, thought, uh, the other one about archeologists and objects, and I mean, it's fabulous. And uh, the, the collection uh, is called uh, Black Athenia. Um, is the book is has been translated even in Spanish, so you can imagine you, you you can find it very easily in a lot of and there is a lot of um, uh, interview of Martin Bernal on on YouTube, for example, talking about this. Also, there is a lot of controversy, of course, because you know uh, Cornell is a very well university; it's, it's very famous, a very strong, really strong archaeology uh, department. So yeah, he got a lot of enemies after that <laughs> publication. Um, uh, basically because, yeah, his thesis was that, you know, all this, what we call and what we uh, had been agreed for centuries that uh, Greek civilization and Roman civilization, you know, they are the Mecca, the canon. He said that, no, no, no. And he also recognized that I'm not the first one saying this. There is a lot yeah. of, especially there is a lot of African uh, academics that has been saying this uh, for years, decades before me. Um, and when you think it is not so difficult, I mean, you don't need to, uh, well, I, I recommend, of course, people read the books, but uh, you don't need, you only have to start thinking, okay, what we know about Platon, what we know about all the classic philosophers, the most of them, they were trained in Alexandria. And people forget what is Ale Alexandria, you know? People still think that Alexandria is in, 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 in Greece, right? Um, and people think that when you tell them, no, Alexandria is in Egypt, and Egypt is Africa. And people think that Alexandria, maybe because they have this amazing library, uh, they, that was the only school of thought in Egypt. And actually, we need to remember how 
de, de, um, de empire, Egyptian empire was built. And it, it, people think that, you know, because that is the mentality as West, uh, Western mentality that we have, everything is built from top to the base, right? To bottom, that direction, uh, that hierarchy direction. But the thing is that in Egypt, it was the other way around because the, the empire is starting the south, where t what is today Sudan. That is where the uh, um, Egyptian empire start and was uh, growing till arrived till what today is El Cairo, the capital. So the empire was built the other way around. You know, was in the same direction that the, n the river, the Nile flow. So that is how it was developed too. So those uh, school of thoughts has been in Africa and uh, through the whole Egyptian empires for century. Alexandria uh, was not the only one. Yeah. Was actually Alexandria was the closer to Europe. Yeah. That's why you, you know, yeah, the geographical, yeah, <laughs> was easy to arrive. Yeah. And of course, they have this amazing library. And of course, uh, you know, there were the infiltration of the Greeks and you know we all understand all that yeah. but that way of thinking and how we build knowledge Alexandria was not the first mm -hmm. there were a lot of and in another more inside of Africa but we don't have the record of that people don't don't are not interested to know yeah. about that kind of thing so the classicals um, European philosophers, the one that we, you know, all the Aristotles, all those people, you know, they were to Africa to learn. Yeah. And that is difficult, you know, it yeah. seems like to history had took Alexandria out of Africa for centuries. Yeah. So why happened, what that happened, why don't we don't understand that this way of thinking and, and uh, this way of how to work and create and build the knowledge mm -hmm. was created in this uh, specific uh, space. Well, it's easy to understand that. Mm. Yeah. Wow, thank you. I just knew it. <laughs> I just knew it. <laughs> well, I didn't. I learned it. But that's um, that's really amazing. It's crazy how like history actively or Western history actively works to erase black indigenous and poc history and and then when and then when you do start to learn about it you realize you've just scratched the surface of like this iceberg that's just waiting to be found and it becomes like stressful and daunting because you're like i only have so much time on this earth. <laughs> am i going to learn all of this and i have to uncover this yeah and then i think it, like it maybe a good question to do with that is like what advice do you have for students who feel like that? Like, because I'll tell you that I'm going to be thinking about this interview for days now. It's going <laughs> to yeah. be like haunting me, <laughs> like yeah, all of the stuff that we've said. Like, so, <laughs> <laughs> it like it this sort of stuff always does with me. So, like, what advice do you have for like how do how do we move from this place of like just like of awe and fascination and so on into like, as you sort of said, doing something about it and how do we sort of come to terms with these feelings of, or what do you, I mean, if you have anything to say, it's a really hard question, but um, like, how do you think is a good way to go about like, 
coming to terms with these feelings and doing something appropriate about it or something that's just about it? I think that, you know, um, when times go by and you look back and you say, oh, you know, I could do something better maybe with the times that I was in the university. I had very good times. I enjoy. But, you know, maybe I could learn more. And mm-hmm. um, I think that it, this is the moment. This is the moment. And I also think... Um, also for my college, that um, we need to we need to ask ourselves for more. You know, just it's nice to be comfortable, but um, when you started to be comfortable with what you know, then something is wrong. Mm. Especially in this sector. Uh, so I ask the same for my students. You know, I. I gave them uh, the, the, the possibility to research on whatever they want. So I'm asking to myself to, you know, I also need to know about that because I need to learn also. And, and I asked them to ask me and to ask themselves and to explain what they are interested in that kind of things. Um, I think it's impossible to teach all history, you know, it's, that is impossible. But I also know that we need more courses, more diversity, that is not enough, that the most of uh, my college are teaching Western history and about Western topics. And um, it's very complicated to take that knowledge, uh, that is an expression we use in Cuba, and take it to the street, you know. So uh, I had this project in in Spain, and I I I did it with my students for uh, three years. That was called uh, "Take University to the Streets," and you know it was like, okay, this is why people teach you. This is why, uh, but what are your questions about it? Maybe you you just feel like you're learning nothing. So we have a problem here because, I mean, you are giving to this institution three, four years of your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's quite sad is that at the end you say, no, I learned nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm bored. And that kind of thing. Okay. So you, st- you, need to sti- you need to start asking, you know, about the things that you are interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as possible, you know, yes. and find that place and put that place in your classes. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure that there is a lot of uh, students that, you know, they feel the same, yeah. basically. So we took the university and put it in the streets. And this course, I remember that was not only open for the students in university, this course was open for everybody. So my classes were mixed. So people from, I didn't care which level, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in that kind of things. I think that you are interested in that topic, you're going to be able to keep going mm-hmm. and, you know, continue in the class and, you know, read what you have to read. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested if you're doing a master, you're an engineer, you know, I don't care about that. Here we are talking about 
what is important right now, what is mm -hmm. happening, and how to connect our everyday life history with um, uh, the history that we teach in class. So mm -hmm. it was pretty cool, and the experience was really extraordinary and amazing. Could it's 11 o'clock now. I could go for another hour, yeah, yeah. honestly. Yeah. I'm about to miss my tutorial. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so just from the bottom of our hearts, thank yeah. you so, so uh, you're much. You're welcome. You're welcome. More than welcome. We're so incredibly grateful. Yeah, and for the time. For the time. And for explaining things to us. I know it, it must be pretty difficult to have to unearth history and especially history about your people and the violence that's been done to them. So... I thank you for that because that must be very tiring and honestly stressful to encounter every day. Yeah. And being vulnerable with yeah. us. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you.